0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features Dr. Deborah Smith Pollard, Professor of English Literature and Humanities, who has been a faculty member at the University of Michigan-Dearborn for 26 years. She earned her doctorate in American Studies from Michigan State and spent one year of her PhD program at Indiana University. She's created and taught a range of courses, including those covering the following categories, Contemporary American, Women's, and African American Literatures. Her teaching has also included Africana studies and gospel music history. Her research has been published in several academic journals. Among the topics are praise and worship in the urban church, Christian rap, and the changes in attire in gospel music. Her book, When the Church Becomes Your Party, Contemporary Gospel Music, printed by Wayne State University Press, it was notably named the notable book by the Library of Michigan, her most recent article entitled, All I See Is Your Booty and Cleavage, Sex in the Contemporary Gospel Song, was published in December of 2020 by the Journal of Society for American Music, the top academic journal in its field. She's currently writing a book about the continuing international impact of the gospel arrangement of the song, Oh Happy Day, by Edwin Hawkins. Dr. Pollard has lectured nationally and internationally on gospel music, from Hawaii to New York, and from Japan to South Africa and England. Among the other highlights in her estimation was serving as a presenter at the Smithsonian's Folk Life Festival and as a panelist at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, along with gospel icons Richard Smallwood and Cedric Dent of Take Six. On the U of M Dearborn campus, she served as chair of the Department of Literature, Philosophy, and the Arts, director and member of African and African-American studies, co-chair of the Strategic Planning Committee with Chancellor Grasso, member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and has participated in numerous other activities. In the Metro Detroit community, she hosted and produced the McDonald's Gospel Fest and the Motor City Praise Fest from 1983 to 2005. She produced the show God Sounds on Detroit's NBC affiliate WDIV for eight years and won a regional Emmy for its Christmas special. She began serving as an on-air radio personality and producer in 1982 on some of the city's top stations, including 18 years on 97.9 WJLB. She's currently co-host and co-producer of Sunday Morning Inspiration on WMXD Mix 92.3 FM with Glenda Curry. Among the honors Dr. Pollard has received... On campus are the Susan B. Anthony Award from the Commission for Women and the Distinguished Service Award, both in 2010. In connection to her work in gospel music, she was named Gospel Announcer of the Year in 2005 during the Stellar Awards, known also as the Grammys of Gospel. In 2021, she was cited as a Michigan Heritage Award honoree in recognition of her decades of academic, media, and community work in gospel music. Dr. Pollard, this is a remarkable body of work. What has inspired you on your journey?
2: Oh, well, thank you for asking. First of all, I was born to two musicians, one of whom became a pastor eventually. But we always had music going on in the house and not just gospel music, though. Obviously, I love gospel music, but we had show tunes, we had pop music, we had just all kinds of music all the time. So that was part of the inspiration. It's just the way I felt about music. The teaching part, the literature part had to do with the fact that my parents read all the time. And I've got three siblings. And even though, as is the case with most siblings, we are very different. (laughs) We all read all the time as well. And then I like sharing the stories that I found to this day. I think I have friends who go... Oh my gosh, she's Daryl Rodney. she's gonna have one of those stories. But they seem to <laughs> like them. <laughs> I would say the majority of my students seem to like the ones that I bring to them as well. So yeah, that's the passion started in my home. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And who in your home was the one who was always playing the music, always reading to you as a family? Both
2: my parents were readers and. They were tied to music. My mother worked for Detroit Public Schools as an accompanist for more than 30 years. And my father was initially a choral director and then later on became a pastor, but he was still singing and still sometimes stepping in. And and besides working with Detroit Public Schools, my mother was minister of music at that same church, the Eliton Baptist Church in Detroit, for 50 years. Wow. So mm-hmm. both of Always tied to the music. Mm-hmm. So this is
1: kind of in your blood.
2: Yeah. kind yeah. of in my blood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> With both teaching and on-air radio personality, are there commonalities in your motivation and approaches?
2: Well, I like sharing stories. And when I hear that question, I thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. It's ironic how they came together. Because when I was initially doing mm-hmm. radio, And uh, I would include doing gospel history. I just thought, well, you should tell them some of these stories that are a part of gospel. When the Smithsonian was focused on Michigan one year and included gospel, someone who became my mentor years later was the host and presenter, but he got ill. When they were bringing it back to Michigan, to Michigan State, they were asked, the, the performers were asked, do you know anybody who does <laughs> gospel music history? And they said, well, there's this woman we know on the air, and she does it. That's how I ended up being a presenter at the Festival of Michigan Life. In the second year, uh, Dr. Kurt Dewhurst, who was the director of the MSU Museum at the time, said, you need to come and do a PhD here. I rubbed my fingers together, which meant, yep. You need to give me some money. And he said, we can take care of that. And so it's ironic how those things sort of came together, because I love sharing those stories so much on the air that it ended up putting me into a PhD program. I always thought I would do a PhD, but I didn't know anybody would ask me to step into such a program. So they just kind of all place came together.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I have to ask, because you mentioned stories many times do you have a favorite story that you like to share as a part of this podcast? That's an interesting question because there are
2: just so many great <laughs> stories. Yeah, I would hope some of your listeners would already know this, but I'll still say it's one of my favorites. Because people think about Mahalia Jackson mm-hmm. as this profound singer, and she was. And I always tell people in the Black church, generally, you put your best singer up before the pastor gets up to preach. So she was singing just before Dr. King um, was to deliver his most famous speech. I have a dream. That's how most people call it. But while he was speaking, that was not what he had intended to say at that March on Washington. And it is Mahalia Jackson who had been traveling with him, who had been donating money to the civil rights movement, who at some point shouted out to him tell them about the dream martin tell them about the dream and he switched from the speech that had been written already to what he had been delivering in fact the first one of the first times i won't say the first but one of the first times he delivered it was right here in my hometown of detroit so that my favorite story. So yes, her music got the audience set up for him. But in the middle of it, she turned to him and said, tell him about the dream, Martin. I love that story.
1: Oh, that's a great (laughs) one. She is quite a legend. What made her so unique in that era? Oh, my goodness.
2: Let's just say that even if you didn't see that, I think it was done on Lifetime, Robin Roberts from BBC was actually the executive producer of a TV version of Mahalia Jackson's story. And you will see that for a lot of people, singing very quiet, calm music <laughs> was what they wanted for a lot of reasons. I have you know, no shame on them, but some of them thought that it would be easier for African Americans to be accepted outside of the community if they sang quieter music. And other people are like, I'm going to be me, and if mm-hmm. I want to exuberantly I will and in that particular tv version there's a point where she starts singing in this church and these people are like "Uh, uh-uh, uh, no don't come in here doing that but thank goodness she decided no I'm going to be me and of course she becomes a superstar with her voice with her style and she is just an icon she's just an icon for doing that but so many people didn't know that besides having that great voice she was was willing to reach into that pocket and support the civil rights movement. And that was an important part of her story as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I hear her sing, you just hear a higher power singing for yeah. her. It is yeah. so soulful.
2: Absolutely. She, she had all of that. And one of our other great icons in gospel music, the Reverend James Cleveland, when I started my TV show on Channel 4, all those years ago. The first person I got a chance to interview was Reverend James Clevenez because I've just always been blessed to be tied to people. His manager was on radio. That's how I got the chance to know him. He sort of showed me some things about gospel radio. Anyway, he set me up with that interview. Our host, I was the producer anyway. He was telling us that he had been the paper boy for Mahalia Jackson. Wow. That is Dave Cleveland got a chance to know him. And he said and she would tell me stories and I would get a chance to hear her sing. And when he thought his voice wasn't quite what it needed to be, and she said, people would like to hear that voice. And it turned out, yes, they really did. So hearing those stories and being able to share those stories, I guess it's just a part of my life that I enjoy.
1: Now, you know, to me, music seems to transcend space and time. And little mm-hmm. in fact, when I was an undergraduate, I took every single course from Robert Garfius, who is a well-known person among the music crowd. Uh, he was a part of the, all the music committees for selecting awardees and stuff and followed him through all of his ethnomusicology classes and ended up with one of the first certificates from UCI in ethnomusicology. And what we learned is how much there's transfer between culture and generations in music, but how it also transforms. And one of the areas that we didn't cover was gospel music, which is really unfortunate. To you, what makes gospel music particularly unique?
2: Well, on one hand, I would say that like it's cousins I call them the cousins blues and jazz it is part of the culture that it grew out of the great migration as people were moving from enslavement into these cities many of them wanted some new sounds and this is what they started to create and uh, with every generation of gospel music they're always, are folks who want, I always say, whatever was being sung, the style that was being performed the day they decided to join the church, they think that's the way this gospel music should sound all the time. It's not what happens. It continues to change because the people change, the community changes. And so just as There were people who thought that Thomas Dorsey, who many people call the king of gospel music, the founder of gospel music, the father of gospel music, he came out of blues, okay? Mm -hmm. So he brought some of those sounds and, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible. And then, you know, you kind of move down the road when you get to Sister Rosetta Tharpe. Oh my goodness, she's got that rock guitar Mm -hmm. and all these rock stars who toast her to this day. She actually got kicked out of the church. Doing what she's doing. So on one hand, we move on down the road. When Edwin Hawkins did oh Happy Day," there were people who felt he should be moved out of the church. Why are you doing this? Because you've got these a song that's being played on R and B stations, on pop stations, on rock stations. That certainly cannot be God's music. So on one hand, gospel is unique because of the lyrics. And I always tell people, if you just Try not to get your mind blown because it sounds like a rock song or a hip hop song or whatever that you've heard. If you listen to the lyrics, if it's a gospel song, you will hear them praising God, honoring God, asking God for forgiveness, asking God to thanking God for something. There's going to be some reference generally, not always, but generally some reference to something in the scripture or something that ties them to this this heavenly entity that they believe in so in that way it's unique but in other ways it sort of ties to its musical cousins in that it continues to change from generation to generation and sometimes it doesn't take it yes we actually have trap gospel does everybody like it nope <laughs> but you know, for some people they appreciate it because it's the sound of the day and if it pulls some younger people or some more, shall we say, open minded people in to listening to the lyrics, then many of us think that's a good thing.
1: Do we have any sense of when gospel music started?
2: In many ways, we say it was like the nineteen hundreds, the late nineteen hundreds, there were some pastors who were Kindling and others. They would write their own songs for their sermons, tied into their sermons, but they were more hymn-like, but they were still somewhat different than what the hymns were that others had heard. They had a bit more spirit to it. And as we move into what the AME church started by Richard Allen was, and no, he was not a founder of gospel, but even he created the first hymn book for a Black denomination and he allowed people to do what we call improvise and see that's a part of gospel too so when we think about all the things that come into gospel music from our African tradition so everything from call and response improvisation the polyrhythms etc those kinds of things are a part of it then we can say that it's goes way back to the continent of Africa, at least the roots of it. But once people of African descent on this continent are introduced to Christianity, This is when they start creating their own sounds, their own music with that lyric, that lyrical base to it. And for some inside of the non-African American community, for some, it was a lot. They were like, wow, it's a big sound. In fact, there were some African-Americans who thought it was a bit too much. But we start talking about the late 1900s into 1920s. And we get into 1920s, late 1920s is when we get to Thomas Dorsey. Again, he was a blues musician who played with Ma Rainey and others, but eventually decided that what he was going to focus on was gospel music. His biggest hit around the world to this day, precious Lord, take my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we started looking at the 1920s. Yeah. We started looking at gospel music starting to grow and it builds when we get into the 1940s to 1960s. This is what one of my mentors called the golden age of gospel, because that's when we have the Mahalia Jacksons and the, uh, so many others, Sally Martin, who started a publishing company, and um, many others who are out there, Roberta Martin, who kind of shapes the sound of the choir, and such a pianist that James Cleveland, even though he did not have a piano, allegedly painted a piano keyboard on a window ledge and practiced playing that way, Mm -hmm. and later on. Came a mentor to Aretha Franklin in terms of how she put gospel into what she was doing. Mm-hmm. So it, it it continues to grow and it continues to evolve, as I said to some. It is a positive and um, as grown as I am, I'm grateful that I'm one of these folks who doesn't say, I don't understand why it doesn't sound like it did in 1970s. I appreciate what it has become today. And uh, does it mean that I love every single song? No, but I didn't love every single song in the 1970s either. But I like the fact that there is gospel music that people have embraced around the world. And that we have been able to see cultures transformed because of gospel music and people who are from countries where Christianity is not even... Let's say in Japan, they say it's like 2% of the population maybe Mm -hmm. um, call themselves Christian. And yet they have so much gospel music going on in Japan, and it's uh, pretty amazing. So it starts back in those early parts of the 1920s, but it continues to grow and continues to impact lives to this day.
1: Sorry for such a long answer. Oh, no, I love it. This is great. I know part of your work focuses on Christian rap. How does that intersect with gospel music?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, that was one of those things that really made some of my friends look at me over there. (laughs) And that had to do with the fact that for quite a while, there were a lot of rap videos at the time where women were not always, shall we say, fully clothed. But it intersects because, as I kind of outline in the book, there's this interesting way of looking at it. When some pastors or preachers preach, they do it, and it's just their voice. But there are others that as they preach, and some people call it the hooping style, it is sort of a musical cadence that's involved with it. And often they have musicians who play underneath it. And so for some of my colleagues in fact one of my great late colleagues um Tim Smith he got way too early he was the one who introduced me to it because I would get off the air on WJLB and I would turn him on and I'm like what is he playing what is that and then after a while I was like I kind of like that and because I was on WJLB which was a hip-hop and R&D station I thought why well, should really pay more attention, as I, again, paid attention to the lyrics, I realized that they were talking about in their raps things that tie to the Bible and to Christianity. And when I started playing it on the air, I would just say, now, if this is not your style, just turn your radio down for four minutes, and then you can tune back in, (laughs) But, Tiffany, to this day, I will run into people and will say, oh, my God, Dr. Depp, which is I, the name I use there because I would also have a segment for kids. I didn't think they should call me just by my first name. And they're like, Dr. Depp, oh, my God, I grew up listening to your music and I just loved it so much. What can I say? And they said, that's what tied me to the church. That's what kept me listening to gospel music. And so that is what has been, again, like any other form, whether it's trap or even contemporary gospel, There are always going to be somebody who doesn't like the change in style. But rap is from the community. And as I said, you tie it to what some of these preachers do on Sunday morning when they are preaching, how the organist may come and play underneath it. You can sort of hear that tie, even with some of our poets in the community who are way before rappers, you can just hear that kind of rhythmic delivery. And so we just kind of have that movement in the gospel music with lyrics that tie it to
1: Christianity, to gospel, to
2: the scripture. Mm -hmm.
1: When you think about today with greater awareness about police brutality happening in the black community, about racial injustice and systemic racism pervasive in the United States, how does gospel and Christian rap intersect with that?
2: Well, we certainly have artists who've addressed some of those things. Um, Kirk Franklin, who, yes, I will say it out loud, is one of my all-time favorites, (laughs) okay, (laughs) has addressed so many of those kinds of things, but there are many others who have done it as well. Kirk Franklin had a song called Revolution, and of course, people were like, oh my gosh, look at his background singers have on, but they were fully dressed. But before they were talking, you know, we're sick and tired of people talking about that they are so religious. But then there's racism. He said, we're tired of two-facedism. You know, so he's connecting those. He's got a more recent song called Strong God. And he also addresses this kind of thing. Mayday, mayday. He said, are we going to save the young people from another Bloody Sunday? Yeah, Bloody Sunday takes us all the way back to the march on that bridge Mm -hmm. with so many activists trying to push back against the racism in a particular community. But when we think about, as you said, what's going on today, there's an artist named Erica Campbell. She and her sister were, and I don't think they'll be singing together again, but they were a big group for a long time called Mary Mary. But she's done a song by her on her own. Singing and praying and believing is the name of the song. And you listen to the lyrics at first and you think, well, that's a very nice beautiful gospel song the video is incredibly powerful in case anybody listening wants to look it up because she decides she's going to reenact what could happen to a black woman who's just in her car she gets pulled over Mm -hmm. she gets taken Prison. She ends up not only praying for herself, but she starts praying for others in there. And then you also see people from different churches who are protesting her incorrect incarceration. And it turns out that there are a number of churches who are tied to an organization that focuses on that kind of work that supported her in that video so there are some of them who make very specific lyrics about that there's a guy named Damon Little and he just talks about I'm wondering if I'll get a chance to get home to see my little children mm-hmm. and, like, and mm-hmm. that's song- okay out of airplay, and another one that just came out called History, and one of the lines in there is like, we're kind of tired of saying that it's going to happen. Is this change really going to happen? And so there are artists, but if you go all the way back in time, like the 1930s, 40s, there is a group, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to pull their name up, but it was called Stalin is Installing, Stalling, and so they were addressing what was happening in Nazi Germany <laughs> at the time. I mean, who was pushing back? So, no, we can't say that it's a regular thing that mm-hmm. gospel art, do, but plenty of them during this pandemic have given us lyrics that say, we're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. That would actually be the lyric that would pop up in a lot of songs. It's going to be okay. It's mm-hmm. going to be all right.
1: Mm-hmm. Would you classify Strange Fruit in that same genre? It's not a gospel song, but it's definitely
2: a protest song. and. Mm-hmm. Looking at some of the protest songs that have been created in gospel, there is a pastor. I don't have the name in front of me. I'm sorry, but I know what he says. If you listen to what Black people are singing religiously, you will know what they are going through sociologically. Okay. And so sometimes people miss that. When uh, Whitney Houston sang with the BB and CC Winans, Mm -hmm. they, they had one of those songs people miss that because you get, I won't say hung up, but we get so in love with I Will Always Love You, right? (laughs) And songs like that, that sometimes we don't recognize some of the other, I call them the deeper cuts maybe that they make, that reference what's happening in the community, and many of our artists really do it. So yeah, we've got protest songs that are tied to gospel, and that's a pretty good thing as well.
1: Now, when you think back, you've mentioned a lot of great artists already, but when you think back over time, are there a few that stand out as really having a lot of influence on the community? And why do you think those stand out to you?
2: Well, certainly Thomas Dorsey, because not only he wrote hundreds of songs (laughs) that people continue to sing to this day, but it's also the fact that this was before... Gospel was an entity on radio, so they had what they called demonstrators, and one of his demonstrators had the name of Mahalia Jackson, and he also had a demonstrator named Sally Martin, who went on, as I said, to become a have her own publishing company. Uh, which was a big deal at that time because Mm -hmm. that's got that music the reverend james cleveland because he did so many recordings Um, by the way part of his time during his lifetime he was right here in detroit and so that's not only where he connected with aretha franklin but with choirs in detroit like the harold smith majestics and there was the craig family here and apparently bishop craig who was a part of an important family here, allegedly had the first idea of the Gospel Music Workshop of America. Well, that started in Detroit in the late 1960s, the first convention was here and for a while every 10 years they would have it here it still is in existence it still brings in all kinds of national artists but also has choirs and quartets and training sessions classes for people and so James Cleveland was a really important one. Andre Crouch and the fact that he had music that was everywhere around the world. But people also, if they watch the TV show, Amen, that was his theme song that he wrote with the Detroiters singing that line in there. But he also had music in the color purple. He was very influential. And we say, well, Christianity is Christianity. Well, there's a black church and there's a white church. Shocking. Now, there's some churches that are interracial. Yes. But primarily, and that's one of the things Dr. King said, at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, that's the most divided time in our country. Well, I'm not going to completely comment as if it's that way, but I think people have a certain sound that they like in their music. And so they tend to go where they like that sound and they like the preaching style and that's just fine but andre crouched back in a movement that was called the jesus movement and this was a big radical thing at the time because you had these young people mainly white kids who looked like the word was hippies at the time (laughs) and they decided that they were going to embrace christianity and there were some churches that let them men, and there were uh, others that were like you can't come in here looking like that Now that's ironic because based on many changes in our culture at starting with casual friday at work then moving into the pandemic where people wear whatever whenever <laughs> like, okay but this wasn't that time right mm-hmm. in the 60s in fact it took some big names in the community to say, I embrace this. This is fine. This is bringing them in. Andre Crutch was allegedly the only major Black artist at that time who was a part of that Jesus movement. So he was singing to white audiences, but he also had a Black audience at the same time. So he was pretty major with it. And finally, if I could just say Detroit in the 1980s and continuing to now, even before the 80s, but the 80s was a big blow-up for Detroit. We had the Winans family. So you had the Winans. Then you had BB and Cece Winans who were on the PTL Club. And then we had the Thomas Whitfield Company. You got commissioned. You had the Clark Sisters. And the Clark Sisters are so big, they continue to be major to this day. There was a Lifetime movie made about the Clark Sisters and it broke some records on lifetime because of how many people watched it. And they continue to their Grammy Award winners and on and on. So those would be some of the folks that I would list. And of course, Edwin Hawkins, because his song Oh Happy Day, it is fifty three years since that release of that song. People are still making their own recordings of it. They're posting themselves dancing to it. They're showing their little kids singing it. There's a bishop in a Catholic church who just starts dancing to this song, and he got like 10 million views for that one. I mean, this is a song that has affected people in Japan, in Switzerland, in Venezuela, you name it, around the world to this day. People still like it. And we call him the father of contemporary gospel music. So there you go.
1: Last night, you sent me a link to the Elevation Music and Maverick collaboration of Jyra. I was wondering Uh if you could talk through the group collaboration and the response to it.
2: Well, again, as I said, (laughs) I just think some people say, and when we go to heaven, I'm going to go over to that black side so I can hear that energetic gospel music. Like, really? Really? (laughs) You think we're going to... Okay. In fact, what these young people who are part of Elevation Worship and Maverick Music have shown us is that there are ways that people can sing together today. I know. Touch your pearls. This is amazing. (laughs) They do what we call praise and worship music, which started decades ago in the white evangelical church and then uh, people like thomas whitfield who was from right here in detroit and fred hammond who was originally with commission and others decided they would bring a sort of gospel turn to it but it's still praise and worship because what does it do as the lyrics say it praises and worships god that's what it does and what these young people have shown is that it does not matter what color you are if you sing well People will post and click and click and click and watch and watch and watch on the song I sent you called Jireh, which is based on the short version of that biblical story. Abraham is supposed to take his son Isaac and, well, he's supposed to sacrifice his son. And he said, but if that's what God wants me to do, and just as he's about to do that, there's a ram. There's a ram that shows up. And so the gyra he's provides, God provided something for him in that crucial moment. And so that's the word gyra. So that's what I keep singing. You're enough. You always give me what I need. And when I sent it to you the other day, there were 56 million views of that song. And these interracial collaboration, they're up for Grammy Award nominations. They were up for stellar for gospel music awards, etc. And not everybody likes it. I know. Shocking. It's like everything else in gospel. (laughs) Some people say it doesn't sound like the black church. Well, first of all, every black church doesn't even sing the same way. That's number one. And number two is that each generation can bring some of its own sounds and its own interpretations as long as the lyrics are there it still makes the gospel this is praise and worship and this is the style that these young people have decided to use and it's really affected a lot of people i know when i first started looking i look at their pictures Mm -hmm. and i said this is
1: amazing
2: this is amazing that you've got people across all kinds of cultures who are embracing this music
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i watched the video last night it was inspiring And the music itself, plus the videos, great. I was like one of the, you know, billions of people who've liked it now. (laughs) (laughs) Final question. Um, If you could tell all of the listeners one thing as we continue through these uncertain times, what would it be?
2: Faith. Have faith that you will get through this. Now, I know everybody listening is not a Christian, but if you are, have faith in God. And even if you are not, have faith that as divided as this community, as this culture seems to be right now, just know that there have been other divisive times, and we've gotten through those, and we can get through this one as well. Try to be as calm as you can. Whether you are a mask wearer or not, try not to go in there and beat up other people about it. It just doesn't have to happen that way. Stay calm, have faith, and know that better days are coming. Yeah, as dark as it looks, there is there's a rainbow coming ahead of us. So just hold on to that faith.
1: Dr. Pollard, I've so appreciated getting a chance to talk to you today. Thank you so much for participating in this podcast. It's always an honor to get to talk to you.
2: Well, Dr. Tiffany Mara, it has been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.